Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And on the fifth day of Christmas, Putin gave Trump a ring. The lead starts right now. It was a, quote, POTUS-level decision, a New York Times investigation, digging deeper on the White House, denying Ukraine almost $400 million in security aid. And President Trump bent on keeping that money on hold. Federal hate crime charges now filed against the man accused of a Hanukkah attack on Orthodox Jews. What is behind all this hate continuing to rise? Plus, Iran vows revenge after the U.S. drops bombs on malicious sites in Iraq and Syria. How many more sparks can this powder keg take? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our politics lead. It is official. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo will meet with the president of Ukraine this week in Kiev, arriving after the top diplomat there, Bill Taylor, who testified in the impeachment inquiry, was encouraged to leave his post. And as we learn new details about the White House efforts to withhold hundreds of millions of dollars of military aid to Ukraine to, at least in part, push Ukraine to commence an investigation that might help President Trump politically, as admitted by the White House Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney. In emails obtained by the New York Times, Mulvaney asked about withholding the aid nearly a month before that now infamous Trump-Ukraine phone call in July, only to be cautioned by one advisor, quote, expect Congress to become unhinged, unquote. The Times also reports a previously unknown meeting where President Trump's top national security officials tried to convince him to release the aid, arguing it was in the best interest of the United States, only to be rebuffed by a defiant President Trump. CNN's Caitlin Collins now takes a closer look at this failed pressure campaign and what this might mean for the impeachment trial in the Senate. President Trump is starting his second week in Florida at his West Palm Beach golf course today. But although he's miles away from Washington, impeachment is still at the top of his mind and in the headlines. A report from The New York Times reveals new details about Trump's demand to withhold nearly $400 million in military aid to Ukraine, with a top aide to the chief of staff accurately predicting the chaos it would cause. Rob Blair telling Mick Mulvaney in an email over the summer, well before Trump was impeached, that restricting the aid was possible, but that the White House should, quote, expect Congress to become unhinged. The report also reveals that in late August, the Secretary of State, Defense Secretary and National Security Advisor all met with Trump to convince him to release the aid. According to The Times, then National Security Advisor John Bolton told Trump it was in America's interest. And the Defense Secretary, Mark Esper, added, This defense relationship, we have gotten some really good benefits from it. But Trump's mind wasn't changed by their united front. Instead, he responded, Ukraine is a corrupt country. We are pissing away our money. 
In between rounds of golf and dinners with old friends, sources say Trump is assembling his defense team for his looming impeachment trial. He was seen golfing with former South Carolina Congressman Trey Gowdy on Sunday, who has been giving him impeachment advice from the outside. But the trial remains at an impasse, with Republicans and Democrats at odds over what it should look like. When the American people walk away from the Senate trial, if we ever have one, I don't want them saying, well, we were just run over by the same truck twice. Trump has also been on the phone with world leaders, including the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. The White House says Putin called to thank Trump for sharing information that thwarted a potential terrorist attack in Russia. Now, Jake, yesterday the president was golfing with Trey Gowdy. Today it's Senator Lindsey Graham, who we should know in a recent interview with the Daily Beast, said that Rudy Giuliani should vet that information he got while he was in Ukraine through the intelligence community before briefing any lawmakers on it because he says it could be Russian propaganda. Gee, I wonder. Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. Uh, uh, And let's talk about this now. Uh, Let me start with you. Big picture, these revelations from the New York Times, this... this, uh, everything going on behind the scenes about this pressure campaign on Ukraine, withholding the aid. Will this affect the trial? Will it affect the demands, uh, the requests from Democrats to have witnesses? I think it's all, it helps Democrats make their case that these are the people that would not show up for the House's impeachment inquiry. Clearly they knew something about it. Clearly there was discussions going on. We had some inkling of that from Gordon Sondland's testimony and others. We'd seen some emails passed around. But this is even more corroboration of what they've suspected the whole time, which is that everybody knew something about what was going on with the aid money and thus making it that much more incumbent to hear from these witnesses. That doesn't necessarily change the minds, though, of um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and others who just want to get this done with, say, let's stick to the facts that was in the House's inquiry and just not add anything more and not have any new witnesses at all. But this is going to be a reinvigorated fight now along the exact same parameters that we've been having it for the last few weeks. It does give um, Speaker Pelosi an opportunity to continue to withhold the articles of impeachment. Prior to this, it was uh, just a broader sense of fairness and wanting to have uh, witnesses and and more of an appropriate standard trial. But now there's actually something for Democrats to hang their hat on, which is that the witnesses that they subpoenaed that were blocked by the White House have material um, evidence and can speak directly to the crimes perpetrated by the president of the United States. So in theory, Speaker Pelosi now has an actual argument versus just a political argument to withhold articles of impeachment indefinitely, potentially even fighting these subpoenas to the Supreme Court. I think there's not a whole lot new in this uh, article other than what we already knew. This puts a little meat on the bones. What stood out with me was the fact we all knew that Mick Mulvaney is really carrying the president's water on this, but there are key meetings that he was left out of. What was the reason for that? Was it to give himself plausible deniability or was it for the president and Rudy Giuliani to have attorney client privilege? I think that is one of the questions that many Democrats will have uh, moving forward. They might have some questions for Mitch Mulvaney. But the reality is Republicans in the Senate pretty much have their minds made up and they know exactly what they're going to do moving forward. And I don't see any anything out of this article that's going to change their minds. Although, Jane, I have to say, I mean, uh, Mick Mulvaney is, is in these emails that the New York Times uncovered a, a month before the call talking about withholding the aid. I, again, I agree that I don't think this is going to change minds for Republicans because I think Republicans are answering to a larger and more to them more important master, which is Trump, who basically holds control of their popularity with voters. And I also think it's interesting, though, that we see so many times with this administration, there's been a 
kind of a standard deviation difference between Donald Trump and the Trump administration. And you see in these emails and time and time again, that deviation, that difference breaking down, that what Trump wants becomes what the administration wants. We saw earlier how the Trump administration has been very tough on Russia, while Trump himself has not been. But again, we're starting to see that line break over and over again. It, it also, though, points to the, what happens when Democrats decide they're no longer going to be playing to what Republican senators may or may not do. Right? This is part of taking the power of the party back, uh, and it's something that you'll see out in the campaign trail as well. And now we're seeing what the official government version of that looks like with Nancy Pelosi saying, it really doesn't matter what Mitch McConnell thinks anymore and who he's playing to. I'm playing to the 50 percent of Americans who believe that the president not only should be impeached, but should be removed. But the, but the problem is there that it's not a hard and fast 50 percent. And that 50 percent of Americans is not voting just on impeachment. And Democrats this entire time have not wanted to become the party that just wants to impeach the president. They wanted to get that over with so they could go back to the kitchen table issues. The longer this goes on with her not passing the articles, that becomes problematic for the Democrats after a while. And also, it, look, there's another element here that we're not talking about, which is the president and what the president potentially tweets. And if he gets upset, we, we were talking before this article about, you know, he's firing off about the whistleblower about Nancy Pelosi, does he say, let's just make a deal on witnesses and say he doesn't care anymore and undercut the Senate Republicans' position? All of that matters, too. And the more time that goes on without a resolution of this, the more Trump becomes an element that could switch, shift the balances. And remember, as much as it's not about playing to the GOP senators in the middle, they are going to be the ones that will cast the deciding votes about whether you have a deal to have certain witnesses or no witnesses at all. Which is why Pelosi maintaining her power and making sure that Trump doesn't get the automatic acquittal in January or February that he's been hoping for. The reality is, yes, 50% support impeachment, but 50% don't. And the House process has not really moved the needle whatsoever. And there have been some polls out that after this House inquiry and the investigation, the support for impeachment has gone down and the president's approval rating has gone up. That is something that Nancy Pelosi cannot fight against. And the reality is she has control in the House and how they executed their inquiry. Mitch McConnell has control in the Senate, and he's going to be the one to determine how and when they move forward. And, and Jane, you were talking about the divergence between uh, what Trump wanted and the administration and how they're actually coming together, the administration getting more in line with what the commander-in-chief actually wants. The Times also reports that the budget office lawyers were working with the White House and the Justice Department on a legal argument. Because right. remember, this, this aid was not just President Trump's back pocket right. cash to like give to whomever he wanted. Congress passed it. The House passed it. The Senate passed right. it. The president signed it into law. He had to give it up. And they were working to, to Ukraine. And the, the White House legal office and the budget office were working on ways to figure out how constitutionally he could withhold it, even though it, I'm not sure that he could. Right. And you see in, in the piece how emails back to it were just saying, like, no, this is ridiculous. I'm speechless that you would even suggest that. But I want to get back to something you, you mentioned how you know, Americans are focused on kitchen table issues, but I also think Americans are focused on kitchen table issues like corruption. You know, corruption is how this story allegedly began, Trump's purported concern about corruption. But I think Americans can easily you know, talk about issues like you know, corruption in government while talking about health care or defense and other issues as well. But I also think it, it's important to remember that all of this is tied together in context. You know, you, you mentioned Trump's polling number is going up. Trump's polling numbers may have remained gone up or remained static, possibly because of good economic indicators. So, you know, the stock market does not really tell you how most people are because 55 percent of Americans hold stocks and the other do not. But I think it's important to remember that all of this polling, all of this information is taking place in a context and that context 
impacts how people are polled, and that context impacts how people feel about the presidency or even the process of impeachment itself. And then, Anita, and- I just want to ask you, uh, what do you make about the fact we finally got a readout from the White House mm-hmm. on the call between Putin and Trump that was placed on Sunday? Uh, it's not unusual now that the president will have a call with the president of, of Russia or wherever, and we don't, we in the press and the American people, we don't find out about it originally from the White House, as it used to be the case. Mm-hmm. We find out about it from state media. In, in Russia, in Moscow. Right. We were all horrified. I think it was two years ago when uh, the first meeting with uh, the foreign minister of, uh, of Russia, as well as a uh, Russian state media reporter, were allowed in the Oval Office and White House reporters weren't. And unfortunately, that has continued to be the norm of this presidency. Um, and we do we see that the president is incapable of separating his responsibilities for national security uh, as a president and his own personal interests. And that's ultimately what is underlying all of the conversation of corruption corruption and uh, impeachment and the campaign and ukraine obviously everyone stick around we got a lot more to talk about up next multiple violent attacks on religious communities in new york new details on what investigators found in the accused attacker's journal after he went on a stabbing spree inside a rabbi's home plus six seconds two victims and the new law that helped stop a texas church shooting in mere moments stay with us back with breaking news in our national lead, Grafton Thomas, the man accused of stabbing five Orthodox Jewish worshipers at a Hanukkah celebration in Muncie, New York, Saturday, just wrapped up a court appearance. Federal hate crime charges have now been added. Family and friends say the suspect has long suffered from mental illness and never previously expressed any anti-Semitic beliefs. But prosecutors this afternoon said they found journals with anti-Semitic writings in the suspect's home. Thomas faces five counts of attempted murder. As CNN's Sarah Seidner reports, the Saturday attack is part of a growing spate of violence against Jews across the U.S. Grafton Thomas is now facing federal hate crime charges after what police say they heard from witnesses and found in his handwritten journal. A reference to Adolf Hitler and Nazi culture on the same page as drawings of a Star of David and a swastika. Thomas's attorney disputes the anti-Semitism allegation. Reverend Page and I and review scores of papers which frankly show the ramblings of a disturbed individual, but there is no suggestion in any of those ramblings and pages of writing of an anti-Semitic motive. Witnesses say the suspect slashed his way through a house full of Orthodox Jewish worshipers, injuring five and leaving behind a terrible blood-soaked scene during what was a Hanukkah celebration. Joseph Gluck was inside that home. When I first saw him, he came, I just saw him wielding his knife back and forth trying to hit, hit guys. Was he saying anything? Nothing. He didn't say a word to anyone inside. He just spoke to me outside once. What did he say? Hey, you, I'll get you. Gluck managed to get out. There were kids in there, so I decided to run back in. Run back in and fight. His only weapon, the furniture around him, now in shambles. I picked it up from the back, and I punched it in his face. He was uh, three feet away from me. I hit him in his face, and he started and, I, and he started coming after me out, out towards the door. When the attacker left, Gluck followed at a distance, worried he was about to go into the synagogue next door. By then, the ambulances were arriving, treating the wounded. It was a very uh, jarring scene. There was a lot of blood. This attack, the 13th on the Jewish community just this month in New York, according to the governor's office. I don't recall them um, selling licenses to have open hunting season on Jews, but it sure can make Jews feel that way. 
Less than two hours later, police tracked the suspect down using the license plate number Gluck had given them. Thousands of Jewish mothers went to sleep more calm that night, not worrying about their kids going to school the next day or their husbands going to pray the next day or they going shopping the next day, not knowing what's going to happen. You are the guardian angel. God is the guardian. I'm a messenger. Now, of the five people who were injured, we understand that four are out of the hospital, including Rabbi Rottenberg's son. We do know that one elderly gentleman, a man who had a skull fracture, remains in the hospital in critical condition, according to friends of the family. Jake. All right, Sarah Seidner in New York. Thank you. Joining me now to talk about this all is New York Times opinion writer and editor Barry Weiss. She's the author of the new book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism. Also back with me is Jane Coaston, who covers anti-Semitism and white nationalism for Vox, among other topics. Uh, Barry, let me start with you. This is kind of a, a sensitive question, but do you think the reaction by politicians and the media would be any different if these recent anti-Semitic attacks had been committed by white supremacists instead of who they were committed by? I do. Uh, and the reason for that is because it took a man walking in with a machete the size of a broomstick for there to be any public outrage during the holiday of Hanukkah. Remember, when he walked into that rabbi's house in Muncie, New York, not 30 miles from where I'm sitting right now, there had already been nine hate crimes against Jews in New York City and Brooklyn that week. Three weeks ago, there was an attack in Jersey City that targeted a kosher supermarket. I went there the day after the attack. And um, viewers probably don't know this. I'm from the synagogue in Pittsburgh um, that was attacked, Tree of Life, a year ago, uh, about a year ago to the day. And in that case, right, there was this incredible outpouring of communal solidarity and support. When I went to Jersey City the day after that attack, there was not a single flower or a single condolence card. I went up and down the street asking people to say something about the attack that had happened on their neighbors. And it was all I could do to get people to say that they were sorry for what had happened. Um, that's really, really disturbing to me. And what it tells you is that in certain cases, uh, when the person is wearing a MAGA hat or when they can be connected to the alt-right, that's sort of a clean case, right? It's someone who we all, people of conscience, see as a villain. But what happens when the person who's an attacker is someone that we, or in ways, when I say we, I mean we people of conscience, see as someone who themselves is part of a victimized group? It seems then that a lot of people don't know how to make sense of that. Right. I mean, I, I, just, to, just to clarify, obviously, you're speaking hyperbolically. You're not talking about everyone with a MAGA hat. Uh, but I, I take the of point. Course I, right, no, no, of course I just want to clarify because the Internet's insane. Um, uh, uh, Jane, uh, what, what do you think of what Barry just said? Yeah, I think that one of the challenges we have is that we keep wanting to use anti-Semitism or racism as a cudgel against our political opposites, forgetting that anti-Semitism exists across the political spectrum. Uh, you know, there are a lot of famous instances of the far right and the far left coming together on the subject of hating Jewish people. Um, you see Nation of Islam ma making common cause with George Lincoln Rockwell, the founder of the American Nazi Party back in the early 1960s. And a lot of the most virulent anti-Semitism comes from Nation of Islam and some of its acolytes. And so I think that one of the challenges we face is that, you know, anti-Semitism is a bipartisan issue. It is an all-partisan issue. It is not an issue that is just connected to one particular racial group. It is something that infects and morphs and 
defigures people and communities. And it's something that we have to be ready to speak out against, because one of the things that's been really horrifying about these attacks have been taking place in New York State and elsewhere against Jewish people is that the only similarity has been the subject of the hate. You know, the people have been different. You know, there, some have been people of color, some have been white, though that that doesn't really matter when all of the victims are Jewish people, specifically people who are Orthodox. Right. And I think that that's people worth noting. People who are noting. visibly Jewish. Yeah, and I think that that's really worth speaking up on because, you know, this is happening to people who are visibly Jewish. This is people who are Orthodox. This is people who are, you know, proud to celebrate their religion and do so in full view and absolutely should be able to do so. That's part of the foundation of this country. Yeah. It, and so it's extremely concerning to see that the only thing that seems to bring all of these different attackers together is hating Jewish people. And, and Barry, I, I, you and I have talked about this before. It does seem like when there are anti-Semitic attacks uh, or, crit- or, or remarks from the left, if you point it out, people on the left attack you. From the right, right, if you point it out, people on the right attack you. And there are people <clears throat> like you who are trying to say, as Jane just did, this, this is a, a disorder across the political spectrum and people should stop using it against each other and, and start uniting. Exactly. And the first thing that I think can happen is for the mayor of New York City, who too often has been talking about anti-Semitism as if it is a partisan issue that is only tied to the president, I think the first thing that he could do is put on a kippah and say, everyone of conscience should join with me on a solidarity march through the neighborhoods of Brooklyn where Jews are being assaulted in the street. And by the way, it's not just in Brooklyn. I had my friend's father-in-law the other day. He was assaulted on the Upper East Side of New York because he was wearing a kippah. Another friend's father um, was walking out of Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish the other night. He wears a kippah. He was said things that I cannot repeat on national television. It's not just happening in the Hasidic enclaves of Brooklyn or the Haredi enclaves of Brooklyn. It's happening to people on the Upper East Side of Manhattan who are, you know, advertising their Judaism in public. Right. Um, so I, I think that it's, you know, Jane put it exactly right. Anti-Semitism is a culturally inherited disease. And in times in which the sort of moral guardrails that keep bigotry down, when those moral guardrails are dismantled, we see it cropping up in all kinds of different places. It's not a partisan issue. It has no color. It has no political party. But the thing that needs to happen from our elected leaders is that they need to be saying that. And the first way for them to do it is to show absolute solidarity uh, with with the Jewish communities that are being attacked. Barry and Jane, we appreciate your voices and your strength in this in this difficult time. Thank you so much. Jane, come back to the panel. We need you for the next next segment. Coming up next, another attack on worshipers, a Sunday service turning deadly after a gunman opens fire in a church. How one man ended the rampage in a matter of seconds. Stay with us. In our national lead, uh, we're hearing firsthand this afternoon from the hero who took down the gunman who murdered two people in a Texas church. It took just six seconds for the churchgoer, Jack Wilson, who does volunteer security for the church, to fire the fatal shot and stop what was a horrific act but could have been much, much worse. The horrifying scene was caught on the church's live stream. We must warn you ahead of time, this report we are about to show you contains some disturbing images from the crime scene, as CNN's Diane Gallagher reports from Texas. A normal Sunday church service turned deadly. A horrifying moment, a shooter opened fire. 
The West Freeway Church of Christ live stream showing the gunman seated in the back pew. He stands up, speaks to a man, then pulls out a gun and fires twice. Two armed church members react, one killing the gunman. And I fired one round. Jack Wilson, head of security at the church, is credited with taking down the gunman. You train, but you hope you never have to go to that extreme. Following a shooting in Sutherland Springs, Texas, two years ago, state lawmakers passed legislation allowing handguns in places of worship and churches to form security teams. If there's any church in this state and in America that was prepared for this, it was this church. Authorities are still learning more about the gunman who has been described as relatively transient by the FBI. My understanding is more of a loner and, and probably going to be very difficult to determine exactly what his motivations were other than maybe mental illness. The victims, two men who simply went to worship on a Sunday, murdered in just six horrific seconds in a church. He always wanted us to be in the church. He was always my role model. One of them identified as Tony Wallace, a deacon and longtime congregant of the church. We just say God wanted him more than we did. They couldn't handle his perfectness here. Now, the other victim killed in this church was 67-year-old Richard White. Uh, the gunman, 43-year-old Keith Thomas Kanunen, uh, he was somebody who had quite a criminal past, including violent crimes and weapons crimes uh, across the country. We spoke with his sister, Jake, and she says that uh, her brother had been living on the streets for some time. She didn't know what caused him to do this, but says that she doesn't believe it's political in nature. The congregation will finish their service later this evening. Diane Gallagher in the El Paso area, thank you so much. Uh, Pete Buttigieg says Joe Biden made one of the worst foreign policy decisions of his lifetime. Now Biden's responding next. In our 2020 lead today, former Vice President Joe Biden is hitting back after Mayor Pete Buttigieg slammed Biden's vote as a senator to authorize the Iraq war. Well, I certainly respect the vice president, but uh, this is an example of why years in Washington is not always the same thing as judgment. Uh, he supported the worst foreign policy decision made by the United States in my lifetime, which was the decision to invade Iraq. I put my foreign policy record against anybody in the country right now. And God love Pete, you know, I respect the fact his service and his willingness to go. Let's uh, chat about this. This was an effective line of attack when Obama used it against Hillary Clinton in 2008. Not so much when Bernie Sanders used it against Hillary Clinton in 2016. Well, it does point to the very interesting generational divide presented by Biden and Buttigieg. And I think the most interesting fact is that Buttigieg is a millennial who mainly attracts older white voters. Um, and so he needs to be pulling from the Biden coalition and, and take some votes from there. But he also needs to do better with uh, right now he's only polling at like two percent with people under the age of 35 with his own generation. So taking that progressive hard left stance of anti-war could potentially help him in that in, regard. In years of hindsight will give all of us great judgment, right? We can all look back and make different decisions if we had the, the benefit of hindsight. The reality is if we go back to that time of that that vote was made, uh, we were in post 9-11. We were concerned about weapons of mass destruction. We were concerned about terrorism. Three-fourths of the senators did vote for the invasion of Iraq. So you have to take that into consideration. And Joe Biden has walked it back a, a bit and saying that th this was not the best decision in hindsight. 
I think Pete Buttigieg is strong. I think he's got a good chance. I think he's, the momentum is in the right direction. This, I don't think, is a, is a good level of attack and a good lane for attack, simply because Biden has walked it back. Biden just said something uh, that I think will surprise you. Uh, he was asked if he would consider a Republican running mate. Take a listen. The answer is I would, but I can't think of one now. <laughs> no, there's some really decent Republicans that are out there still. But here's the problem right now of the well-known ones. They've got to step up. Boy, I'm not sure how the grassroots is going to take that one. Well, I think that one of the things about Biden that both infuriates and attracts is that Biden is the idea behind Biden is we can harken back to the halcyon days of 2014. (laughs) Like, you know, there was an easier time when things were better six, five years ago. And I think that one of the things Biden really represents is the idea of returning to normalcy, a normalcy as defined by Joe Biden, but normalcy nonetheless. And I think for some older voters, that is very appealing. But for a lot of younger voters, you know, I I just keep thinking about, you know, I'm 32. uh, September 11th happened my freshman year of high school. We've been at war that entire time. And so I think it's really interesting that, you know, younger voters are responding to Joe Biden saying things like that. Like, we are not dealing in normal times. We are not dealing in kind of, you know, the Tip O'Neill Kennedy friendship times. We are dealing with the era of Donald Trump, the era of purportedly normal to people, congressional Republicans, tweeting things and saying things essentially to kind of impress Trump and impress Trump's voters. So I think that while Biden's appeal to normalcy, as Biden defines it, is very appealing to a lot of voters, I think for younger voters, people kind of around my age kind of see that as the kind of the return to more of the same. Yeah. Biden's been running and when he talks about bipartisanship, he's running a general election message that does not fit this time and that basically ignores the fact that most of the Democratic Party is to the left of him right now. He is assuming that if he's the nominee, he's going to have enough of a groundswell behind him that it doesn't matter that he can do that. So he doesn't have to appeal to the Bernie voters, appeal to the Elizabeth Warren voters. The Iraq war, I think he's probably the only person left on that stage that actually took a vote for the Iraq war at this point. So it's a unique position for him to have, especially when Buttigieg is going ideologically after voters that are kind of in the Biden camp, too, running more towards the the moderate middle than to the the, the Democratic base of the party that is far more liberal now. But, you know, just generally speaking, who is he going to He's right that there's nobody out there right now because none of the Republicans that are no longer in the GOP really can draw people. And as, and as Buttigieg prepares for his last day as the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, later this week, CNN's Abby Phillip is going to take a look at how his record could both help and hurt his White House bid. What are we doing to promote business? I always like to think of trains as being commerce, right? <laughs> That's the sound of commerce. Pete Buttigieg's city, South Bend, Indiana, is vibrant again. For many folks, that's a sign of sort of the South, the beginning comeback of South Bend. The Studebaker plant that was once the heart of this Midwestern industrial town, now at the center of its comeback story. During Buttigieg's eight years as mayor, he not only led what he calls a turnaround city, but also deployed to Afghanistan, announced he's gay, and is now setting his sights on the White House. South Bend is back. His small-town accomplishments, 3.7% unemployment, nearly $200 million in private investment downtown, a reinvigorated stadium, and tackling urban blight are a big part of his presidential campaign. Washington experience is not the only experience that matters. 
Then there's what's happening outside of downtown South Bend. I mean, they don't, 100% don't care about the community. They care about what's going on downtown. Tyree Bonds lost his brother, Eric Logan, killed by police this summer and sparking racial tensions across Buttigieg's city, now following him on the campaign trail. Like, why should you be the president if it doesn't, like, if you didn't do a good job in South Bend? So, let's be really clear. Most people in South Bend believe I did a good job. But his black supporters here feel their voices are being drowned out, literally. Who tells these people as the black leaders? This meeting ended in chaos, with city council member Sharon McBride, who supports Buttigieg, interrupted by protesters. I was born in the, raised in the hood. I love my city. This is personal for you. It's personal. So it's very hurtful, but, you know, I love what I do. Bonds was there, too. What he said was the truth. Who put them in a place to say they was our black leaders? Because they was not our black leaders. Those close to him say this summer's protests changed Buttigieg. I think that was absolutely a learning experience for Pete. I think that he welcomed um, and maybe needed if he's going to be the president of the United States. And Jake, we also spoke to some South Bend residents here, particularly in the poorer parts of town, who felt like the economic boom wasn't reaching them. At the same time, Pete Buttigieg is being preceded uh, or is being succeeded by his former chief of staff, who uh, just won the mayoral race and will take over on January 1st, a sign that Buttigieg says that South Bend residents want his work to continue in the new mayor. Jake. All right, Abby Phillip in the fourth biggest city in Indiana, South Bend. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Be sure to ring in 2020 right here on CNN with Anderson Cooper and Andy Cohen. New Year's Eve Live starts at 8 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, Iran now promising consequences after U.S. strikes target an Iranian-backed militia. Stay with us. In our world lead, Iran, now threatening retaliation after the U.S. military conducted a series of strikes on an Iranian-backed militia that operates in both Iraq and Syria. The Pentagon said the militia was involved in attacks on Americans and described the operation as, quote, precision defensive strikes, claiming that at least 25 members of the militia were killed. CNN's Ryan Brown is at the Pentagon for us. Now, Ryan, what type of targets were specifically hit? Well, Jake, we're being told that the targets were selected in part because of their connections to some of these attacks that have been conducted by this Khatib Hezbollah group, uh, which the U.S. says is trained, equipped, and, and organized by Iran. Now, the targets were, we're told, a headquarters, an operations center, and weapons storage facilities. And when they hit the weapons storage facilities, there were these secondary explosions, kind of underscoring how much munitions were being kept there, munitions that the U.S. Belize were in part responsible for some of these complex attacks on U.S. bases, one of which led to the death of an American contractor prompting these strikes. Uh, Ryan, what more do we know about this group specifically? Well, the group uh, is connected to Iran. It has been for some time. Uh, It's been involved in Iraq and and Syria on Iran's behalf. But it is also ostensibly part of the Iraq's security force. And this has really complicated the U.S.-Iraq relationship. Iraq has criticized the U.S. strikes very publicly, saying it was a violation of their sovereignty. And that all begs the question, what's to become of the 5,000 U.S. troops currently in Iraq? Will they be allowed to stay in the wake of these strikes? Will additional restrictions be placed upon them? And again, I think the U.S. will be watching closely whether Iran, its proxies, or anyone else takes retaliation steps of their own in the wake of these strikes. All right, Ryan Brown at the Pentagon. Thank you so much. Coming up, 
a top Democrat who says he has no doubt why President Trump released the aid to Ukraine. Stay with us. And we're back with our pop culture lead today. On Wednesday night, CNN will air a riveting new documentary about music legend Linda Ronstadt, whose Grammy award-winning singing career sadly came to an end due to a rare health condition. Ronstadt spoke recently with CNN's Anderson Cooper. Hearing the, the diagnosis, how, what is that like? Well, I was shocked. That wasn't what I was expecting. I, I had this tremor. And I went to the doctor, and I expected he was going to say I had a pinched nerve, and they could fix it. Mm. You know, he said, well, I think you might have Parkinson's disease, and I was totally shocked. Mm. It took him about an, a year after that to come to the diagnosis, and then it took a little bit longer to come to supernuclear palsy. Initially, they thought it was Parkinson's, and then they realized and it's, the it's this other morse. There's different ways that you walk that they can. And there, I also read that they can diagnose Parkinson's really early by listening to, vo- to their voice. Mm. Since my voice has been recorded so much of the time, I'd like to see if I was right about it starting in 2000, but I'm sure I was because I know the feeling. It, it seems particularly cruel to have something that affects your voice well, first, beyond, before really even anything else. It's a strain on my family relations because some of my family in Tucson are Republicans. <laughs> and instead of talking about that, we'd sing together and we'd have a great time. That, the singing is what <laughs> brought your family together. Yeah. So what, So now that you don't have singing... Well, what? now I have to be careful because we've had so much taken away from us by this administration that I'm not willing to let him take my family relationships away. My family were... The parts that were Republican were fairly rational Republicans. <laughs> we don't have that in our current current White House. So so you can still have family gatherings. It's just a little more strained. I try to just hum a little harmony someplace in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> to yourself. Yeah. Uh-huh. I've read that you have read a lot about the the uh, about uh, the, the the Weimar Republic in Germany, and you sort of see parallels between then and now. Well, great parallels. I mean, the intelligentsia of Berlin, and the literati, and the, all the artists were just busy doing their thing, and there were a lot of chances as Hitler rose to power. There were a lot of chances to stop him, and they didn't speak out. And the industrial complex thought that they could control him once they got him in office, and of course, he was not controllable. And by the time he got established, he put his own people in place and, you know, stacked the courts and did what he had to do to consolidate his power. And we got Hitler and he destroyed Germany. He destroyed centuries of intellectual history, forward and backward. The, you know, the people like Beethoven and Goethe and Thomas Mann became jokes. They became Nazi laughingstock. I think a lot of people, though, would, would, would be surprised to hear comparisons between what happened then and, and, and now. If you read the history, you won't be surprised. It's exactly the same. Get, 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 find a common enemy for everybody to hate. When I was sure that Trump was going to get elected the day he announced, and I said he's going to, it's going to be like Hitler and the Mexicans are the new Jews. Mm. And sure enough, that's what he delivered. You know. Linda Ronstadt, "The Sound of My Voice" premieres New Year's Day at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, only on CNN. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks for watching. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. 
Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.